Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. I'm delighted to have Leanne Hobson here today. Leanne is CEO of Alinea Partners. Leanne, would you like to give us a quick introduction to who you are and what you guys do? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Happy to be here today. As you said, we are a agency based in, or you haven't said this yet, but we're an agency based in Vienna, um, Austria, and we work worldwide. We are what is known as a strategic marketing agency. So we cover all things for sales enablement, channel development, and marketing. We also hire people with technical and language skills due to the nature of the work that we do. And we focus only on IT and telecommunications companies and have companies such as Microsoft, Motorola Solutions, Xerox, O2, most of the telcos, and many others on our roster. Excellent. Do you work with scale-ups as well? In the sense that we do work with all of those companies I mentioned and more channel partners. So when you take a look at everyone from a GoDaddy and a Rackspace down to an Insight or a smaller company that might represent just a particular country, like a Singhammer that you may not have heard of, but represents a particular country. So yes. So, Leanne, I know that you're really passionate about customer experience. So, first of all, can we define what that means? Because in my experience, when people talk about customer experience, they normally think of customer complaints, which clearly it isn't. If it's got to that point, then you've messed up the customer experience. Exactly. Exactly. I don't want to be calling customer service. For me, customer experience is what happens when we buy something, whether that's good or bad. That then affects two things, whether we purchase or whether we walk out the door, or the third thing actually is whether we refer. So talk to me about what you mean by the customer journey and when does it begin and does it ever end? Okay, so I think that it's a little bit different than I read about in LinkedIn and in all of the different content sources. (laughs) That's why Um, you're here. (laughs) (laughs) I think there are two parts of it two very valid parts and two very distinct audiences or profiles, let's say, if we want to use that word. It is not the customer experience. It is first the buyer's experience, the prospect's experience, meaning I haven't bought from you yet and I haven't chosen you yet. I may choose 10 or 100 other competitors to you. And I shouldn't be treated as though I am already an existing customer. Once I cross that threshold and decide to invest my trust in you and purchase and give you my money, then I'm a customer. And then it's all around keeping me and getting me to be loyal and getting me to preferably refer. So that's the first step. When we look at that journey, we know it's not linear, but I think that we can basically say there are a number of different steps that we all go through when we purchase something or when we have a buying experience. If we were to look at it in the traditional terms that you and I, because we're a little bit older, have probably um, gone through, we'd look first at the discovery phase. So, aha, I want to buy something. Who offers it? The second phase would be awareness, as I often hear it called by Hootsuite and others today, or we would call it probably the education phase, meaning... How do I educate myself in order to decide how I'm going to create a shortlist, to put it simply? Once we go through that phase, we then go into the natural sales engagement process. Now, from experience, that's probably going to be chat, 
sophisticated or not sophisticated. Web forms, email. In Latin America, they still use fax and telephone. So we then talk to people. We ask the questions that we came up with while we were doing due diligence or the education phase. And then we decide, yes or no, we're going to purchase. Once we purchase, there's a whole process involved in that. Everything from giving you my money and how well that goes to welcome, onboarding, provisioning. How do I actually get the package or the software? And then there's the whole phase of the experience that has to do with getting started. How easy is it? How intuitive is it? Can I do it? If I can do it, then it's probably relatively easy. If I have to call somebody from my team that's more technical, that's a problem in many cases. Then we look at what's the natural process if I do happen to have a problem. So what does customer support look like? And then you repeat the process. And if I haven't decided somewhere along the line to abandon the sale, then I've gone through the exact, the complete journey. And that starts with Google and goes all the way to customer service. Okay. I'm going to ask a mildly contentious question because from our perspective within Sangha, certainly in my experience, is that if you're engaging in a conversation at that point where the customer has already been doing research, you're more likely to be order-taking than selling. And so I can see that you disagree, but let me just go a little bit deeper. There's that awful statistic floating around the internet that says by the time a salesperson gets called in, the buyer is already 56% of the way through their buying journey. Now, the challenge here, I believe, is that most salespeople are afraid of or too lazy to prospect. And as a result, they don't get in early enough to shape the prospective buyer's thinking. So is the customer journey that you work with, with your clients, any different where there is that proactive side to the sale rather than from a marketing perspective, which I get the internet and data sheets and all that kind of stuff? I think there are two different pieces to that. One is what the buyer's needs are at the time of the call, let's say. And the other is the capability of the salesperson and the process around the salesperson, which is very important. To your first point, um, if I'm buying something that's relatively easy to understand on the website, then if I can't buy on the website automatically and I have to talk to a salesperson, then yes, it's order taking in that sense. However, let's say we've always had our own software and yeah, we've got a couple of servers in the back room. We know we're behind the times and we're worried about security. We're worried about leakage, et cetera. So we need to go to the cloud. Great. We've heard about this. I do research or somebody on my team does research. They find somebody in Google on page one or two, we hope. And then we go to the website. We look at all kinds of things. So we, we've got a list of questions. And we call in and we want to talk to somebody, one, to answer our questions, and two, to find out whether we want to work with this person. If that person instills trust, if we feel like they're consulting with us and they're advising us, and we're comfortable having them own part of our business. And in that case, I think you are very much looking at a consultative type of sale. Okay. I'll just take this a little bit further because this is my bugbear as well. I think often buyers don't need know that they need help. And often when they do go out to the market to purchase something, 
they're often looking at the symptom rather than the cause. And as a result, you often find that they're disappointed with the result when they do make the purchase because they haven't got to the root cause. And this is where I think there needs to be much closer alignment between sales and marketing, but also going out and speaking to prospective customers to diagnose the real problem so that you can solve the problem at its cause rather than putting a sticking plaster on the cancer. I agree. And that's what I talk about when I mean consultative selling. It's more around, okay, maybe you have a pain point, but tell me a bit more about the environment you work in, what you want to achieve, what your the opportunities are, or can I go even further than that and delight you by telling you about some ideas that you didn't even have on the table because you're not the expert there. That's where the real value comes in. And that's Absolutely. where you see some companies that are just head and shoulders above Joe or Jane, average salesperson. I think we're in violent agreement now. Okay, now we agree. Okay. Let's take something we don't agree on. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take this slightly further. I know that you talk about not having good improvement plans, not holding ourselves to high enough standards, not constantly reviewing what we're doing and getting ahead of the problem. So do you mind telling me a little bit about maybe a couple of war stories of companies that have failed to do that and then they realize what they could do and the transformation that that had with their, the customer experience, but also what impact that had in terms of reputation and growth? As I say this, there are just as many companies that are doing it right. So those kinds of scenarios that I mentioned, if you can resonate, be afraid because you're not keeping up with the competition. There were a lot of things there, but in general, what we find is quite often the perception versus reality is not there. My first question would be, of your listeners or viewers, how many of you have had your buying journey checked in the last six months? How many have assessed exactly what it's like to buy from you? Okay. Very if the few. answer is no, <laughs> then yeah, very few. There's a question. Now, we've done this with over 500 different companies in the last four years. So there are companies out there doing it. But what happens when we go through the process is we find all kinds of problems, big and small. Some of them are really easy to fix. Some of them are a bit more challenging. I'll give you a couple of examples. If you are on page two or three of Google, you're not being seen. How often do you look at anything other than page one? Companies need to be obsessed about that. And there are different ways of doing it. And there are agencies that are experts. And it's not that challenging unless you have a name that is not easily identifiable or that you can separate from a lot of other companies. Step one, websites. We were shopping a very large global company's website recently. And the language was all in this, we're talking at me instead of to me or, or with me. They referred to us sometimes as a reseller and sometimes as a partner. Instead of talking to you because they want to sell to me, they were referring to me as this abstract partner, which was odd. Plus, it was very, very technical. So uh, coming at it as an SMB CEO, where I'm looking for a business outcome or a, a solution to a problem, 
I don't necessarily care whether you're going to sell me Azure or AWS in order to, to fix that problem, or you're going to sell me this printer or that printer to fix my problem. What I want to know is what would appeal to me the most, and if I have these issues, what should I be thinking about? And there are lots of different things on website that can be cleaned up and can make that whole learning process easy. The other thing we find quite often is people have zero search function on their website. So what does this mean? It means that I either have to read everything on your website in order to find what I'm looking for. Because everyone's that patient, of course. Exactly. I have lots of time. You too, eh? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Or this is what our buyers do. And they do this globally without my instruction in different languages. And what they do is they go back to Google to search onto your website. So maybe they do that once. Maybe they do it twice. It's awkward. One, two, what's the propensity that they're going to jump onto a different website or into a different shop having done that? Or someone else has got better keywords, so they get found. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So those are some of the things we find there. In the sales engagement discussion, contact is the first. How often have you sent an email to a company and you get nothing in return? You go into the ether. How often have you tried to call a company and there's no phone number? Uh It happens all the time. War stories. We have had companies where we have called them 23 times, spoken on voicemail. Nobody has called us back. On the 24th call, we got somebody on the phone and we were told, you know, we have a lot of customers. We're really very busy. And half of our team was out on holiday last week. You'll just have to wait. Did you feel special and loved? Yeah. Now, we went through that whole process. Nobody else is going to call 23 times. And in fact, I've instructed since that time, we don't call more than three times because we don't need to add insult to injury. And it's not about finding bad things. It's about finding things that can be easily fixed. And that's something that can be easily fixed. Another company we were calling Voicemail, voicemail, voicemail. When we spoke with the CEO, it turned out their PBX was seven years old and it kept dumping calls. So if it was dumping our calls, how many other potential calls has it been dumping in the last six months? So contact, make sure it works and we can reach you. And somebody either answers ideal situation and can talk to us or they call us back in a reasonable amount of time. The other area that companies lose sales all the time, proposal. So it's a more complex situation. You have a conversation with me. It actually goes well enough that I say, send me a proposal. Two times out of three, regardless of the solution, regardless of where we are in the world, we do not get a proposal. Okay. So I have some thoughts on that as well. A proposal is not a sales document. No. It's a, no. It's a confirmation of an order. And often... Salespeople don't send the proposal because their processes are broken. But often what they do is they send a proposal without agreeing what has to go into it for the prospect to buy from them. And it's a crashing waste of time. And as a result, a lot of salespeople are run ragged doing busy work, pointless work that results in nothing. I was recently speaking to, in fact, this week I've spoken to three prospects, 
And on average, 96% of the opportunities they start end up in no deal or a no. They were all convinced that they were converting somewhere between one in three and one in five. But to get there, they have to go anywhere between five and 12 touches. Now, Mm -hmm. that's a monstrous waste of time. And we see the same thing in the channel. Um, One of the bits of depressing research that's coming out from the last couple of years of working off the back of the book has been that 2% of partners produce anywhere from 40 to 60% of the profitable revenue. And a large chunk of the channel is basically racing down to the bottom on price. And they're simply selling the products at as near to cost as possible in order to buy the services business. And that's not good for anybody because it's not really good for them either because they're spending an awful lot of time just quoting and hoping. I'm getting a really low margin. Well, 17% is the average margin for resale at the moment, which is barely break even. When you knock out, when exactly. you take it down to net, that's barely break even. I know one of the challenges that we've got here is transferring the culture and the values of customer experience into the channel, into partner experience. I know that you've got a great background in working with partners. So could you tell me the kind of things that you're experiencing that improve the partner experience? Because in my book, they are your best customer. You know, a partner can be worth 50, 500 times one end user customer. Yeah, I think it comes down to a number of things. One is involving them in the discussions, which basically means give them the respect that you would give anyone else you have a partnership with. Would you relate it to a personal experience? Would you treat a personal experience the way that you treat a partner in the business? Microsoft has a really good example of that recently. They were going to change some terms and conditions right before their big global yearly partner conference. And when they told their channel in advance, the channel was not happy about it, didn't like it, gave very pointed feedback on it, and (laughs) they listened. (laughs) They listened. They actually pulled it back. It takes a big company, so to speak, to do that. Those are the types of scenarios that are workable. If you have those conversations and you listen, then that's a good premise for the beginning of the relationship. So I'm curious about this. What sort of cadence should there be in terms of regular, deliberate, intentional listening to the customer and listening to partners? I think that there are, it depends on the size of the channel and the company, but obviously, you know, in person on a one time a year or or quarterly is critical for this is what we plan on doing. Give us your feedback. And by the way, thank you. So let's celebrate a little bit. But there are other ways of doing that. There are different intra sites that can be used, uh, Yammer groups uh, or any other social sites that can be set up to do quick feedbacks on. We're thinking of of launching this in in green. Do you like that idea? Or, you know, we're going to put three arms on this sweater. You know, does that make sense? (laughs) Um, Whatever it happens to be. But we we have the technology. Exactly. (laughs) We have the technology today to allow that ad hoc stuff to happen. So there's no reason it shouldn't be done. The second thing is you should make sure and hold partners up to standards that they hire people of quality, both in the sales and the marketing. I think you've hit the nail right on the head there. 
But the challenge here is if you go out and you recruit a land army of partners, then you're far too stretched. One of the principles that we teach is that you should be building a special forces unit, really help them to become great at selling your stuff, put money in their backs, and then build, pivot five degrees, five degrees, five degrees. But take your time to build an effective channel. Don't just go out and recruit loads of partners because you can't really be a partner if you do that. If you've got to go out and look after 80 or 90 or 100 partners, then the level of attention you can give them, and bear in mind, you pay attention. Attention is a currency. And it's very easy to become overdrawn in the emotional bank account with your partners. I think the phrase that I've started coining is vendor fatigue. Because the average channel manager, and this is in larger companies, stays in post 2.1 years. So six months to find the laboratory, six months to work out what's going on, six months to try and make all sorts of changes, and then seven months to go and uh, get their CV out and go on interview. And on average, what, um, how many partner relationships do they have? Often they've got 80, 90 or more. Then and you're, you're dealing with a call center. Yeah, precisely. Their experience is the channel manager phones up and says, Leanne, what do you got for me this month? Nothing. Great. I'll speak to you next month. And when they see the caller ID and it's coming from one of their vendor cams, they're thinking, oh, God, another interruption. So, again, I think one of the really important things that I'm seeing, and I know that you're an advocate of this, is that every time you touch the customer, every time you touch a partner, you should be adding value. It shouldn't just be an unwelcome interruption. So what's the, what are the best practices that you're seeing in order to ensure that every single time someone picks up the phone to a customer or to a partner, it's a welcome call? And at the end of it, they say, that was worth my time. Well, one is having doing the due diligence and keeping tabs on the businesses of your partners. So we have social tools today, LinkedIn. You can find out what your partners are what their themes are, what they're writing about, what they're commenting about. You can watch their conversations. And this is something that allows you to then have a more qualified conversation about the merger they just did or the the big account they just brought on. You know, congratulations, by the way, are you resourced for it? Or are they going to stretch your current consulting capabilities? Do you need to look at partnering with somebody else in order to bring that in? Or can we do something to help you in the short term with a flash team? That type of thing. So I think one is monitoring the conversations they're having generally in the industry and not necessarily just relying on only getting information that time you're on the phone with them or you're exchanging an email. It's easier today than it ever was before. That's a really good point. I mean, one of the things that I'm a huge advocate of as well is having a clear upfront agreement about the frequency and the quality of the touches. So having a quarterly value review where at the outset of any relationship, whether it be with a customer or with a partner, you establish the mutual accountability and you identify maybe five areas that your partners are going to hold you to account for and five areas you're going to hold them to account for so that each time you meet for that quarterly value review, you're raising the bar. And if you've managed to crack any one of those, then reset it or create a new accountability factor. And I think 
so many people are afraid of accountability because they're afraid of conflict. And conflict is a good thing if it's constructive. And what I see so much of is people avoiding all sorts of conflict. And so what they do is they deserve what they tolerate. I think you have to have really good agreements in place with people where you're adult to adult. And you say, Leanne, we're partners. We're going to tell each other the truth, even if we're afraid to do it, and even if it hurts. Because the objective here is for both of us to get better. That defines partnership for me, rather than you're an indentured servant who's going to go out and work on my behalf. And then I'm going to phone you at the end of every month or quarter and ask you why you haven't hit your targets. Yeah. 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 So you mentioned in the preamble to this about organizations that have taken the lazy option of outsourcing their business development, their sales, without really having agencies who are properly trained up, partners who aren't properly trained up. Talk to me about what you are doing with your customers to make them A, aware of that, and what's the advice that you would give to improve it? Outsourcing sales? You mentioned that they're outsourcing resources to agencies. Okay, thank you. Now I remember. Quite often when a company gets really large and they want to do more programs, uh, continue to expand, one of the tendencies we're seeing is that they often bring in outside resources or they make agencies six months on, six months off part of their organization. So they go to the, they work for the agency, but they have a brand and they're outsourced by the company. And the problem with that is that agencies, as, as we know, tend to have a pretty, tend to, to spin em, employees relatively quickly. People bounce between different agencies. It's up or out. And so they don't necessarily hang around long enough in order to learn enough about the core company's business, one. And two, they may not, in the case of the conversation we're having right now, necessarily have worked with the channel or have worked in the field, which is a lot different than working at corporate. And people talk about that. And there are, there's bad news on both sides. The old joke about, yeah. I'm here from corporate, I'm here to help you. all the way from the field going out and and doing things double triple that could be done once by corporate so it's a balance and there's a conversation and there's alignment that has to take place but i strongly believe if you're going to staff any organization to help support the channel and help support growth both on we're talking about sales and marketing here in this case they have to be qualified people the senior people have to be senior enough that you want them to be on your management team. So it's yeah. not a marketing intern. It's not somebody who's just done events. If you can't bring that marketing person and have them sit at your management team level to have those discussions, then you've got the wrong person or the wrong strategy. And I think that holds true for companies that are not allocating the resources, making the investments to do those things. And so it makes everything harder in the full chain for everybody. I'm really curious about something. It's it's sprung to mind. How important is aligning values right at the outset of a relationship, whether you're looking at partnerships, whether you're looking at outsourcing? Critical. And I can give you a personal example. We have a partner agency or we've had different partner agencies over the years. And basically, they help us scale when we have to have multiple languages. 
And when we originally signed up with them, our whole value proposition or, or our delivery proposition is around, we want to deliver consistent quality and consistent commercial quality. Um, and it's not all taking a risk here. It's not all about the money for us. I would rather say, keep your money. We'll do this. I just want the client to be happy. Now, obviously, you have to do that reasonably and responsibly if you have people that are depending on you. But what, what I found after about four months with this relationship is that they were thinking only about getting the job done as quickly as humanly possible yeah. and not about the quality. And I would say to them, why didn't you raise that issue? Why didn't you ask that question? Why didn't you ask if you could do this part again because it would give you better results or the results were inconclusive the first time? And the answer finally came out. They were only thinking about getting it done fast. And so we parted because we didn't have that. They didn't have the same DNA qualities that we have. And it was interesting because they've had some changes. And about a year later, we talked again and the leadership team had changed and they were much more in line. We were much more in line with each other. We started working together again and it works now. And I think it's going to, to continue to work, but wasn't working because we didn't have that discussion up front. That makes so much sense. One of the things that we see often, because I do a lot of work with outsourced media companies, and okay. they're under so much pressure to drive down the cost. And it's all about turnaround. So working with companies in pharma, for example, or tech, the end user customer throws stuff over the fence at them at the last minute. And it requires three months, but they've got two weeks to complete it. And they don't plant their feet. They don't say, I'm sorry, not going to happen because they're afraid of losing the business. And too often that's driven by a scarcity mentality because they don't have enough in their pipeline. And they also suffer from a ludicrous belief that the customer is king. The customer has a problem and you're the expert. And it's incumbent on you to make sure that you tell them the truth. And if they're just throwing stuff over the fence and you condition them to think that that's okay, then it serves you right when they fire you. I remember speaking to one of my media clients years ago, and their motto was, you're never more than three years from being fired. You take on an account for three years, and you're just going to waiting to be fired. And yeah. the first year is trying to find your way around it. The next year is being worked to the bone. And the next year is uh, dealing, fielding unhappy customers all the way through until it comes to the tender process, where you have to tender for the work that you should win, but you don't. It seems ludicrous. That's one of my favorite interview questions. When's the last time you said no to a customer or to a client or to your boss? It's a difficult thing to do. I mean, the economy is difficult. Uh, the higher you get in an organization, you know, the worse the, the air is, the more difficult it is to find a, an equal level job elsewhere. So people get nervous. I mean, that's human nature. And when people start working, it takes a while to get that experience. And hopefully they have good mentors around them, but often they don't, to learn that, hey, you know, in the right situation with the right wording, it's okay to say no. It's okay to say not with these terms and conditions. And in fact, when you're able to do that, and you learn this over the years, when you're able to do that, 
then the relationships are better, the business bet is better. And, you know, it's not just about making more money. It's also about how much fun it is to come to work every day or twice a week, depending on whatever your work-life balance is. (laughs) I think you've touched on another really important point here. One of my favorite interview questions very early on is when is it okay to lie to a prospect? To lie to a prospect. Give me an example of when it's... Give me an example of a lie. Well, I think any form of lie to a prospect is unacceptable. And the only response that's acceptable is never. Often people lie out of that scarcity mentality or because the culture of their organization says do anything to get the business because their pipeline is weak or because their values are skewed. And saying no, always telling them, I think are creditable qualities and they demonstrate vulnerability and vulnerability is a strength. Yeah. Yeah. If if played right. I agree with you. I also um, would probably extend that to half truths. Those are my favorite probably because of, I didn't lie to you. Mm -hmm. I just didn't mention, meaning I have to figure out what the right question is in order to get the truth about this situation. And that would also make a buyer or a customer quite annoyed if they figured Absolutely. it out. Absolutely. My view is always get ahead of the problem. And if there's a pro- if yeah. there's a bomb waiting to blow, you light the fuse. Leanne, we've never worked in quantum computing. Is that going to be a problem? I'd rather deal with it now rather than have to try and skirt around it for months. And then when I get found out, then have to make excuses or say something awful like you never asked me that question. But there are people and salespeople that do believe in the philosophy of ask me if I know how to perform this surgery and I'll tell you, yes, I've done it 10 times before and I can do it again. So make it till you break it. I'm sure you've heard of and it's out there. People have to decide what's right for them and what's authentic for them. And, you know, if they are not and they get burned, maybe they learn or maybe they're just lucky and they'll never get caught. Situations are out there like that, and different companies run different ways. You've mentioned the really important word about being authentic. Now, in terms of the customer experience, how do you bring authenticity into that whole experience so that the customer knows that if you say something, one of the basic rules of life is if you lie and get found out, they can never really depend on anything you ever say from that moment on. Yeah, I have a fundamental belief that authenticity throughout is critical. So how do you build that into a culture where maybe they've come from a place where you, know, you tell half-truths or you admit? First, I think authenticity has more to do than just truth-telling. It has to do with how you present yourself and whether you present a facade or whether you, you honestly say, you know, hey, this is who I am. And I think that that can be done in every stage. I don't think that a salesperson who works for a company has to pretend to be someone different. They can be the funny person or the serious person or the intense person that whatever they happen to be, if that's who they truly are, that chemistry will resonate or not resonate with different kinds of of buyers. But if a company is trying to do this and, and start to build it in DNA, then they have to take a step back and really take it, do an analysis of where are the instances where we have not been as open, honest, and clear as we should have been? Are those areas that we believe would give us better relationships with our customers 
if we stop doing that? And then you have to evaluate to what degree can you stop? Maybe it's a, a half grade this time, and then you try to get to a different goal. But then to slowly work that through your whole process. And maybe it's, you know, we've been fudging a little bit with how we present the offer on the website. We kind of imply that it does a bit more than it does. It doesn't actually do the windows as well. Um, so, you know, maybe you want to comb that back and say what the real value of it is and what it really can do. Since I believe that the website is part of the sales team today and not just brochureware, it can be done on that a- aspect as well as with the direct conversation with sales. One of the things that I see a lot of, there's an expression, the speed of the leader determines the speed of the group. I should have said it was the leadership that should be driving it down through the organization. I think it absolutely shouldn't. Any form of ambiguity creates confusion. It also creates politics. You know, ambiguity at the top filters down as politics at the bottom. But let's talk a little bit about clarity. When we're talking to the customer, how crucial is it to be absolutely clear about what you stand for, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, what the boundaries are, what your expectations are as the vendor? I think it's critical. I I would no longer, now that I own my own company, I would no longer do business any other way even if it means walking away or having them walk away. It gets complicated when you work for a bigger organization and there are revenue targets. I mean, I set my own revenue targets, so it's a, it's a different situation. You set your own revenue targets. Within a company, it, there's pressure around that, but there are ways of dealing with it. And yeah, I think that somebody, an employee, regardless of where you are in the chain, has to be able to raise their hand and say when they think that it's going beyond the boundary of where they're comfortable. You've got to look at the, the leadership of the organization. If the leadership is saying one thing and doing another, then that's not a company you probably want to work for if you're of the same thinking as you and I. Uh, absolutely, which is probably why we both end up working for ourselves. So- no, there are good companies out there. <laughs> Well, there are some fantastic companies out there. But again, one of the things that I'm seeing all the time is that leadership is not clear about that they want to hear from their people. So you hear about the voice of the customer. And I think a lot of organizations pay lip service. So I recently stayed at a hotel. The usual dreadful customer survey came back. They haven't come back and told me what they're going to do about the things that I pointed out to them by way of feedback. And the same thing near to your people. And you need to treat them as if they are customers because they're critical. If your employees don't feel that their voice is going to be heard, you will suffer from turnover of your talent, not of the ones that are holding on with their cold, dead hand because they can't get another job, but of the good people. So when you're working with your clients, how are you getting them to use the same principles to get the voice of their people? One of the major products that we have or services that we have are these sales journey assessments. And we deal with the management team when we conduct them. So part of the conversation is always around, okay, we've identified here areas where you guys are great. And in fact, some of these areas, you're not even shining enough of a light on. You could be really using this as incentive, as value proposition, as differentiator. So that's one thing. On the other side... These are the areas that didn't go so well. 
maybe they were confusing. Maybe they could have just been done better because, you know, we've done a lot of these and we know what's competitive out there. Or maybe these are areas where we would have downright abandoned the sale. We get that together. We work with them on an improvement plan. And then we have a conversation with them about, okay, how are you going to deliver this message to your people? And it's interesting because best case scenario, what we recommend is that there is some sort of a forum or a meeting or a team event where the results of our assessment is put forward to the organization, good, bad, ugly, plus recommendations for improvements and get their feedback on that. Plus ask them about, if you remember this situation, if you see it in, the, in your, your CRM system, your pipeline, what happened on your side that made this outcome? Then you can suddenly get a 360 degree view of the problem or the good thing, and you can fix it or expand on it. The companies that I would say are less mature and have less mature leadership decide to keep that information for themselves. And quite often, I had a a conversation with a very large, tall sales rep once who, you know, wanted to instruct me that I didn't know what I was talking about. And the whole problem in his view was that his people weren't working hard enough. They shouldn't be going to lunch. They shouldn't be doing this. And I said, you know, I hate to say this because my grandmother used to say it, but fish rots from the head. And he didn't appreciate it. But, you know, he's had three different jobs in the last three years. I've found four years. I've, I, I did find that. So Sometimes you have to tell people the kind truth. And how do I tell you that that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard without you getting upset? It's often creates either a laugh or it catalyzes the conversation to get the real problem. I think the British use quite to say that. (laughs) (laughs) What you say doesn't necessarily mean what you mean. I spent a fair amount of time working with the Dutch, who are very direct. I like that, though. I do, too. I've learned that you need to be candid and direct. If people have to try and unpick and unveil what you mean, that creates confusion. Yeah, ambiguity is the mother of all food bars. Leanne, thank you so much for this. It's been really entertaining and very engaging. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Tell me, who do you read? What books would you recommend? Podcasts, videos? Who's got really great material around the customer journey and customer experience? I'm a fan of Gary Vee. I don't know whether you've, you've listened to him. Not everything that he puts out, that's okay. But I think there's some good core messages. And I think he's very authentic to who he is. And I like that. And as an entrepreneur, also running larger companies, I find that he can package things quite well. I also read a lot from Jay McBain from Forrester. He doesn't talk like the typical analyst. And I don't mean to insult all analysts in the world. Please don't send me emails. But send uh, your offensive he, emails to me. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, he he talks like a normal person and, and he gets yeah. to the point. And also he always has really interesting insights about a couple of steps down the road. I had a conversation with him a couple of months ago around how services organizations and um, partnerships are going to start to evolve and there's going to emerge 
new ecosystems in marketplace yeah. style. And I'm starting to see it. You know, you can see it from companies like Logic Babe with Fuse, very new on the market. And in our program, we see that with the referrals that we've built in. Uh, so it's coming. And then CN McLaughlin out of Australia. CN, Charlie November. C-I-A-N, CN, has some very interesting blogs on customer experience. I also think he really gets it from a, a sales perspective. Very interesting. In, in fact, I interviewed Jay specifically about the shadow channel for the podcast. So mm-hmm. released that a couple of weeks ago. I'll cool. send you a link and I'll put it on the post for this. Tell me this then. You've got a golden ticket. You can go back to advise your idiot 23-year-old self. What would you tell the again. <laughs> <laughs> what, what would you tell her? The funny thing is I kind of addressed this on my LinkedIn profile, but I would tell myself to get over myself and <laughs> not take myself so seriously. I did that for a long, long time, partially out of insecurity, probably of the requirement to gain experience in order to not feel insecure about certain things, but uh, basically just get over yourself, be authentic. It's okay to be who you are and good things will come as a result of it. I think that's really good advice. And I wish I'd followed that myself. I think when I was younger, I was very brittle and I took things personally and that created needless and perfectly avoidable conflict, but it also defensive. And what I've learned over the years is failure is fine. Learning from it is where you learn all of your best lessons. I I can't remember any substantial lesson in life that came from a victory. I can remember a, a lot that came from a good dose of scar tissue. So don't take yourself seriously and be ready and prepared to fail and admit it. Just grow up, own your mistakes. Because I think it's part of the human condition. You're going to fail, enroll. It doesn't mean you're a bad human being. So that's fantastic advice. Leanne, thank you. How can people get hold of you if they want to follow up or find out more about Alan Air? They can find me on LinkedIn. I have an oddly spelled name, L-E-A-H-A-N-N-E, Hobson, like Hobson's Choice. I think I'm the only one in LinkedIn. Or you can send me an email to my name, leanne.hobson at alanea-partners. Dot com plus four three in Austria six nine nine one one eight zero one four three three. I feel like I'm on one of those nighttime. <laughs> <laughs> I'm selling a blender. <laughs> uh, well, I, I used to train a guy who was known as Mister Christmas. And, Did you really? Um, yeah, and he was selling red umbrellas, and I taught him how to do a thirty-second commercial. And I taught him how to frame it around pain. They sold 30,000 umbrellas in under an hour. So, yeah. yeah. So that, that was a real eye-opener. That was on QVC, which is a, a big television sales channel. Exactly. Uh, Leanne, thank you so much. This has been really interesting. And mm-hmm. I look forward to us developing our partnership because I can see areas that we can collaborate and look forward to many, many happy years uh, collaborating and working together. Fantastic. Thank you. Have a good weekend. Thank you. (laughs) Leanne Hobson, thank you very much. That's me, Marcus Kauke, signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. If you have questions for either myself or for Leanne, then get in touch at marcus.kauke, C-A-U-C-H-I, at sandler.com. 
connect with us both on LinkedIn. And if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, you've got something useful and controversial to say around sales, channel, customer experience, partner experience, hiring salespeople, getting rid of the dross in your business, then please get in touch. That's Marcus Kauke signing off. Happy selling. Bye-bye.